Welcome everyone in our JKL community. I'm your host, Justin, AKA Just Tries, and we're always talking vulnerability, learning, and growth mindset. Search Just Keep Learning for more content geared toward helping you achieve your own big dreams. Our mission is to help millions of people be lifelong learners and achieve their goals too, so please help us get the word out if you know anyone who could benefit from the show. Our guest today is a huge advocate of lifelong learning. As an entrepreneur, educator, and artist, he has a ton of great ideas to share. He teaches college business courses for creatives and coaches under the incredible Seth Godin. With a deep understanding of learning to learn, monetization, marketing, and how to build confidence as creatives, he is the perfect guest for you to learn from. Please welcome to episode 16 of Just Keep Learning, Rick Kitagawa. If you were sitting in a lobby of a hotel and someone sat down beside you and asked you who you are and what you do, what would the synopsis be? I'd say, hey, hi, my name is Rick Kitagawa and I am an inner monster tailor. I run a consultancy called the Bright Spot Trust, where we focus on teaching leaders how to build their leadership skills with practical frameworks centered through the lens of trust. And I also work on uh, individual coaching in terms of helping people wrangle their inner monsters like imposter syndrome and all of the negative self-talk that we all do. Do you have a website or a business that's different than that for the one-to-one coaching or does that come up randomly? No, that um, I do actually have a separate business for the one-to-one coaching, which is uh, kaijucoaching.com. Kaiju named after the Japanese giant rubber suit monsters like Godzilla, or if you watch Pacific Rim, the big monsters there. Yeah, I do that separately as my own business. And then I run the Bright Spot Trust uh, as a partnership with uh, Lisa Lambert, who uh, runs her own consultancy privately called Rule Number Six, which focuses on innovation for uh, companies. And so the the coaching, what's the format in terms of how someone accesses you as a coach? Is it like one um, session or is it sort of a package deal or how does that work? I think it really varies on the individual person. Kind of the, the entry point is that someone would come and book a 20 minute mini coaching session with me because I don't think it's uh, like through work I've done going to therapists and other coaches, I think it's really important to find the right person for you. And so I offer a free 20 minute coaching call basically to get to know each other. We can probably work through something. Uh, and this is all done via Zoom. So it's all online and remote with video. Um, and then from that point, we can look to see if uh, I've had clients who have needed smaller engagements or really kind of rapid ones because they're working. I work with a lot of creatives. And so it's, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I have this project I need to ship and I'm having a lot of resistance here. Can you help me? And sometimes I'll meet with people, you know, like three times a week for two weeks and other people, it'll be a more uh, long term engagement. Um, where it might be something like, oh, once a month for six months. And so it really depends on kind of the individual's needs and, and what they're struggling with. And because I also don't feel like taking a one size fits all approach because that's really not how people work. That's one of the fascinating things when we look into the world of online business, there's such a push to find a target audience a specific problem that you solve for people. But when you get into something like coaching, I find it fascinating because it takes that first bit of exploration into what they actually need your help with. Do you find you have any sort of tips and tricks in terms of how to figure out what that is for each individual? I think 
figuring out what that is really goes down to active listening. And I think it's really hard. I, I think there's a lot of pressure around online businesses to, you know, like have your target demographic. And that's totally important. I don't want to discount that. But I think the number one thing people need to do is talk to their prospective clients. You know, whatever you're trying to teach someone, like talk to more people and if you see that problem coming up and that's something you can help with, help them with, that's where you kind of move forward. But I think it's really about just holding space, active listening, and really letting people talk more than you're talking. Because I think there's a, a very strong bias to want to hear what you want to hear. And people are likely to do that if you're doing more talking. So it's really opening up the conversation and saying, hey, I actually want to know how are you doing? What are you struggling with? And just giving them that space to keep going. Um, I think that's the number one thing that I would suggest to people to get more insights into what do the clients actually need. I'm such a huge advocate of coaching in general. I have a sports background and maybe that's part of it, but I also just feel that we all need guidance at any given moment. I do find that there's a lot of people who don't want to pay for that when there's free YouTube, free Googling things. Why do you think coaching can add additional value to people's journey? I think coaching is so valuable because one, it's personalized to you. And two, it's reacting real time as opposed to having a more prescriptive tone. Like even, um, you know, like I think podcasts and YouTube and books, uh, you know, I, I listen to podcasts, I watch YouTube videos, uh, I subscribe to Masterclass. I, you know, buy a bunch of books. It's probably one of my biggest expenditures uh, outside of like rent and living. Um, and those are all super helpful. But at the same time, I think they're also structured in a way that they provide a lot of value to a lot of people. And when I'm coming up against something personally that is a really high obstacle, I'd rather have someone. Uh, tailor their expertise and their knowledge uh, really to me and to ask me the questions that I need to unlock things. And I think really what it gets down to is that deep down inside, we each have the solutions to our own problems. But really what a coach is there to do is to help you unlock that and figure out the solution for you. Because worldview and our own internal narratives, there's something that we really usually can't articulate to other people, right? Like I can't, uh, you know, even in a 10 hour conversation, I'm not going to know everything about a person and in terms of like their finances, their stories from that they got from their childhood, their, you know, personal traumas and things that, and, and just, you know, their highs or lows, everything that people have gone through that makes up them. I'm never going to know them as well as they know themselves. And so really as a coach, what I'm trying to do is just draw reflect back their own problem in a way that they can solve the problem themselves. And when you do that, you find that the coachee, when they come to the realization, as opposed to being told what they should be doing, they're going to stick with that much better than if someone else gives them advice and they're like, oh, you should go do this um, versus them saying, oh, I should go do this. And that's a complete different level of stickiness, I'd say, to creating a new habit or uh, transforming your strategy, changing your technique, like in sports, that's the value I would say that coaching brings. 
one of the things that a lot of people wonder about and the purpose of this podcast is to kind of relieve some of the mystery around things related to online business. People have a fear of charging others oftentimes, or they have a fear of paying for things, not seeing the value. In terms of how that works beyond your free 20-minute consultation, is it a scale that slides or do you tend to charge people the same thing? How do you go about that aspect of it? To kind of pull back the curtain on my own practice, I'm, I'm pretty flexible about that. I generally subscribe to the notion of free or full price because I think that really sets a standard that like you're either paying for this and you see the value of it, or I'm giving you a gift, right? And that's generally how I run my businesses publicly. Privately, though, I also want to make sure that I am very cognizant of people's financial uh, situation too. And like like in my own life, I know I've definitely, as a creative as well, I felt the need to pay full price, even if maybe I couldn't actually afford it, right? And it's like, oh, I'll it's on the credit card or something like that. And being that I understand the social forces at, at play uh, in terms of status and, and stories we tell us ourselves about money and worth and value and things like that, I still want to create a business, right? And the business is important. So charging people is important. But I'm also, when I understand that there is maybe something else at play, I will actually just change my full price to be something more affordable for that that individual. I appreciate that. And one of the topics that we're really focused on right now is online business. That's such a big basket, if you will. And within that, you have Facebook ads and you have blogs and you have courses, which we'll get into later. One thing that I find fascinating is with coaching, it can be harder to articulate answers, I think. And the reason I believe as a big fan of coaching is that a lot of the answers are from the heart as opposed to the mind, right? When it comes to empathy or such contextual things. So I think that's neat that you're willing to do that. Um, I think a lot of people get it confused with stubbornness around building a coaching business. So just to look at the other part of your business life for a second, coaching aside, but Bright Spot Trust specifically, how do you guys serve clients in that business? We've actually pivoted recently towards really focusing on consulting. So Lisa and I started collaborating with the idea that kind of like what you mentioned before, how things like empathy, active listening, a lot of you know what people quote unquote called soft skills, I'd say people centric skills, those are often pushed aside in large corporate settings specifically because they're hard to measure. And I think people, when they're undervaluing those skills, they're really kind of minimizing their organization's potential. And we kind of came up with the idea that we wanted to bring a practical framework to this work and to the lens of trust specifically, because we found that trust really underlies most organizational problems, most people's problems generally. And by bringing a very practical, measurable, actionable, repeatable uh, framework to each of these facets, like we've come up with a way that you can practice empathy, right? So a lot of people were like, well, how do I, how do I become more empathetic? It's like, oh, okay, well, we've created this exercise you can do repeatedly that makes you more empathetic. And that unlocks things like active listening. It unlocks things like better relationships. And we can put metrics behind all of that. So you can actually see how your return on investment is actually, you know, growing by investing in your people and your own individual self and these soft, you know, quote unquote, soft skills. And so 
We help people through online courses. We also help organizations develop their own online training um, where we could either help them with the curriculum. We can also run their training for them. Um, we also do consultancies on certain things like uh, belonging and inclusion, a really wide spectrum all through the lens of trust. Trust is definitely the bottom of the pyramid when it comes to business or any relationships. Um, I think that's invaluable what you would provide these companies and hopefully they see it. Um, I know it's big in education as well. What got you interested in the topic of trust in the first place? The way that Lisa and I started collaborating was actually through building out the practical empathy tool. Um, we were both coaching in Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program, and we were kind of just talking about empathy and, and how we could make it more practical because we found a lot of people get how important it is, but also struggle with how do I get better at this? And so we had been talking about developing something that's a little bit more for the kind of more scientific minded people or people who like feel like empathy, it might be too warm and fuzzy, right? But they're like, okay, I, I want something practical. I want something that I can do step by step by step and get better at it. And so we developed this framework initially for that. And then Lisa and I were just continuing conversations about building out practical frameworks. And she actually was the one that had the idea that trust was at the core of it. And then we started really working together to kind of build out the necessary components. We call them the five facets of trust, of uh, clarity, credibility, consistency, caring, and connection. And we've sort of broken those five facets down into different kind of skill buckets of different skills that you learn that reinforce those. And so that that's really where it all started is it was really just through the idea of building out the practical process. And then through discovery, we, we kind of realized that trust really was at the core of most problems. This podcast is not about me, but if I shared with you my papers from my master's, I think you'd be fascinated because I was trying to get into a PhD on exactly that pitch. Trust is at the foundation of everything we do. And I built a little mind map framework as well that I stuck with in terms of my, the master's thesis. For me, it was reading a Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team and recognizing that really at the base of that pyramid, when I looked at things like the New England Patriots as a football team that was super successful, I'm like, wow, those things all exist based on trust. I looked at schools that I worked in um, that were really effective and was like, the trust was all there. Schools I worked in that were less effective, the, the trust was missing. In terms of kind of like your early years in education and school or business, let's go a little wider now and say, how did Rick get from young boy? all the way in the short version to now where you're building these businesses, helping major corporations build trust and to where you are today. I kind of want to first preface it with, I also, I was very privileged in the way that the way my brain works, works really well for the traditional uh, school system. So in terms of like teacher tells you to, to learn something, you regurgitate it on a test. And then if you do really well on that test, they congratulate you. and then you get put into gifted programs and that gets you into a good college and, and so on and so forth, it gives you scholarships. And my brain works really well in terms of cramming in information, regurgitating it in a, in a new way that's my own. And then I completely forget it in like a few days. And so for me, 
school was very easy and it was a thing that I did really, really well. And that kind of led me to higher education, which then was interesting because I got thrown up against a wall with people who were much brighter than me and classes that were much more difficult than what I could easily do this. And I realized that I had never worked hard kind of my entire life. And getting to that point at a, you know, I ended up going to UC Berkeley. I failed my math class my first semester because I was like, oh, I have like, what's this studying thing? Like, I don't, I don't study. I cram before tests. And then I got back my first, you know, my midterm, which is 50% of your grade. And I had like a 10% on it. And I'm like, oh, this is much different than what I'm used to. And so I, I ended up graduating Cal. I actually went back to college for a second bachelor's um, at uh, Academy of Art University in San Francisco, California. And I went into art because that's actually what I like doing versus what I thought I was good at, which is traditional school. And art school, surprisingly, you have to work very, very, very hard. There is no BSing that. There is no one who is naturally professional at art like anyone who's like oh they can draw really well that's also because they spend a lot of time drawing and i really learned hard work there and i think from going from what was really transformative and i think what really pushed me to where i am today is this idea of having like coasting really easily through life and then suddenly realizing that that doesn't cut it no matter where you are for the most part um and that really forced me to start leveraging a lot of other strengths I had of, of um, teaching, of talking to people. And that sort of led me on a weird career path of, of working in retail and then running, running a t-shirt printing business through that and using that to help also with a gallery that I co-owned. And then that led me to teaching business, which then led me to coaching, which then sort of led me to where I am now. And so it's really this wide breadth of, I think, bouncing around things and having to constantly rely on what I was good at to help get me through what I was bad at. And I think being flexible and learning to focus on the process because I wasn't getting results um, and focus focusing on the process allowed me to actually keep pushing through the hard parts. And then that eventually got me results. So it's kind of a, a wide winding story, but um, hopefully that, that makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> well, aren't they all? I think um, that in and of itself speaks to this whole life journey that if we're fortunate enough to live long enough, that we're going to have all these experiences that build us into the person we are today, not necessarily next year yet. I did in my research find that you appreciate art and learning as well as business. Maybe just describe a little bit of why you appreciate art and perhaps how you think it can help in the world of online business. Sure. I, I mean, I, I really appreciate art because I think what I've realized through my own kind of creative journey is how individual everyone is. Like, even if you were to tell, you know, a hundred artists randomly selected to, to paint the same thing, the way they do it is all going to be different. And even if, if I was like, okay, everybody paint a skull. And even if some people even have the same reference, just the way that they hold the charcoal or the way that they're holding the brush, like whatever, that's all going to be different. And I think that really lends itself to kind of what I was talking about earlier with worldview and that it's really important to, while there's a lot of similarities among broad uh, kind of psychographics or the way people think 
and and how they act. Everyone's still really unique. I don't know. That's the key to business in a way. I think is is looking to solve individuals people's problems as opposed to solving like a big general problem. Or that by solving a problem for a person, you will often solve a problem for a lot of other people. I think that's one thing that's fascinating to jump on is that you mentioned Seth and the Akimbo workshops and those kinds of things. A lot of times when we're in workshops, we're talking about target audience and niche and what's your specific focus. But then if you ask, well, what connects all of us? Sometimes it's it, as the uh, consumers of a course like that, it's hard to make that connection because it hits on so such a wide range of so-called target audience. Um, so I think that's the, the neat paradox. But starting with the target audience can be helpful. In terms of that uniqueness, I think that it's something that also comes into play in education more and more every day. The traditional school system working for you, at least in high school. And for me, in my case, it worked, but it's because I knew how to play the game sort of. Now, I know I've seen a lot of advice out there about not necessarily needing college or university. What's your two cents on that argument? I love that question because so uh, I I also used to teach, like I said, uh, I taught business courses uh, for creative specifically at a private art university for about six years. It was this interesting thing that I would go on the first day and tell students, I was like, you know, you don't actually need college. Your tuition pays me to be here literally, but I don't know if you necessarily need that. And it's a very personal choice. Like I'm, I'm not really in either camp of like the alternative schooling versus go to college or go to a trade school or go to whatever. I think it's really about like, what do you, what do you want to achieve? And understanding what you need to achieve that. And I, I don't mean like a degree, which in some case, yeah, if you want to be a doctor, you do need to go to college, you do need to go to med school, like those are real constraints, because you can literally kill someone accident, right. But for most of us, like consulting or social media management or illustration or programming, it depends on how you learn. Because if you have the discipline to go out there and do research and to interview people who are professionals, and to watch a bunch of YouTube videos and to practice what they're telling you to practice on your own, you totally don't need school. Everything is out there. Information, there has never been more information out there than there is today, right? And there's going to be more information out there tomorrow. If you're that type of person that can go and synthesize all that, you don't need to go to college. If you are the type of person like I was when I went to school that needed someone to be able to tell me what I'm doing wrong, to make me practice because I personally really, I don't like doing things until I have a deadline, right? And so having grades and evaluations and dates that papers need to be turned in, like for those types of people, I would say, yeah, college can definitely be worth it. And college is also really powerful in that you can build the relationships and the network of other people who are doing similar things to you and finding those other people. It kind of just puts a lot of same-minded people in one area. And so that facilitates, you know, that network building and those relationships. But it's not to say you can't do that outside of college either in other programs and in other groups where you're finding the same passion or the same type of people. So I always just value learning more so than necessarily traditional education. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And while I definitely know what you mean, what would be the difference in terms of a definition in your mind, learning versus education? Um. I would say education seems to me to me tied to more, a more traditional structure of having a person who knows what's going on teach people who don't 
or who know less about what's going on. Um, learning is something that is just you're constantly trying to uh, increase the world inside your head, whether that's a skill, um, a subject matter, um, knowledge about yourself or about relationships or with people. And I think constantly learning doesn't have to feel like academics. Well, I think education feels more, in my mind, like you get a degree, you get a certificate, you get a little checkbox that says you've done this. While learning can be, I'm going to learn how to forge a samurai sword. I don't know. And then it's like, I'm going to go learn how to negotiate a business contract. And then I'm going to go learn uh, about, you know, the Tiger King on Netflix or whatever it is, right? It, and it, it's just uh, constantly moving and expanding that world uh, that you have in your, your own mind. The reason why I named my website Just Keep Learning, on one hand, I actually started with mental health because I think like you had brought up about empathy, when we can take a learning stance about learning how we're interacting with people, that was the real genesis of it. But it's grown into the idea of the mind as well, continually learning things beyond what formal education might do. But the purpose of this podcast, I hope, is just another example of bridging learning and mainstream media, so whether it's video, audio, written form, to help um, education be a little more effective for people. The youth that I often work with have dropped in and out of high school because the traditional system didn't work for them. I know that we're only brainstorming because there's no right answer, but what are some ideas that you might have about doing more of that? Like the, you mentioned Netflix, the eyes are on the apps, they're on YouTube, they're on blogs, they're on social media. What are some ideas you have around bringing real learning to those teens to help them learn? Yeah, I think so much of it is engaging people where they're at not where we necessarily want them to be. And I think that's really hard because it's often a lot more work, right? Like as a, as an educator, it's easier for me to just go to explain something with a video and then just put that on YouTube, right? Or And that that's one step. But I honestly think learning is best done with other people. And, and and that's partially why I'm so involved in the Kimbo community is because that's sort of the difference, right? Because like the videos that Seth Godin records, you could either pay a premium and take the live workshop where we have the coaches and you have the community. And that's really what it's all about, right? Because you could pay a fraction of the price to get those same videos on like Udemy or something. And just like, oh, here's a video course, you watch it, work on it yourself, right? But really, what we've sort of learned through working with Seth and, and really kind of thinking about education and how it is, is that it's harder to get people to engage in, in the work and do the work. But if you can figure out how to get people to do that, that's where the magic happens. And so the Kimbo workshops aren't for ev everyone, obviously, but it's really about finding the right mode for the right people. And so like, you know, he has courses on Udemy. That's great for people who want the you know, asynchronous, you know, they don't have to be anywhere. They just work on it whenever they want. You know, you have like the bootstrappers workshop, which is about business and growth. And you go through it with a cohort of people and the magic is in building out your network, working on an idea with those people, with the coaches. And that's great for a certain group of people, right? And then there might be people who that's not great for, but it's, if those are the people you're trying to serve, um, and this is for anyone 
you know, thinking about building online classes is like, think about where are those people? So if school does not work for you, how can we reimagine what learning can look like, right? Like, how do they learn best? Is it through illustrations? Is it through words? Is it through peer-to-peer interaction? Because then maybe you shouldn't have teachers and you should have, you should seed a group of peers who are learning together with people who are more experienced and less experienced, and they can all learn together. But that's also really hard to do. And that's why I think people default to just saying, I'm going to record a video and tell you how to live your life. And that may work for some people. It obviously does because people still do it. But I think really reimagining education is making something that's custom fit for the individual. And I think that's why education is, can be such a huge niche in terms of, you know, maybe someone only learns through sports analogies. And I think it would be awesome if maybe a math teacher wanted to explain calculus all through sports. And that, and I'm sure if you love sports, you could be like, oh, I get that. Like that makes me better at golf or makes me better, better at basketball. And I also learn calculus, right? Like, and, and that could be super cool. So I, I think the possibilities for education and where it can go are, are really immense. And it's just about people figuring out how they learn too, and then seeking out those programs. And if those programs don't exist, that's an opportunity to build one yourself. We haven't even really dove into course creation quite yet. And I think you just unlocked for teachers, public, private, doesn't matter all over the world what that key is unlocking for the individual, how they learn best, but then scaling it so that they can work in a group of people who learn best that way. And I do think the Akimbo workshops do a good job of that. Are there any particular teachers that stand out in your mind that helped you become someone who understands learning so well? I haven't actually thought about that, to be honest, but I the first person that comes to mind is actually one of my history teachers back in high school. His name's Dan Thiel. And he was also eventually the program manager for the International Baccalaureate Program, which is this international kind of certified, standardized education system for high school. And as a senior in high school, you take a class called Theory of Knowledge. It really breaks down kind of like how how do you learn? It taught me that there was a field just about learning that you could kind of consider even for yourself. How do you learn best? How are you picking up skills? And I think that sort of really, that class was really the foundation of me even thinking about that. And that really then led me to people like Tim Ferriss, right, who, who really breaks down learning and tries to accelerate it. Joshua Kaufman, who did the personal MBA, who wrote that. And he also did, uh, I think his, his follow-up book to that was 20 Hours to Learn Anything. Really just this idea that learning doesn't have to be kind of this very top-down, you know, traditional education system and that there's people that learn differently and you know, I find like where, when do I learn best is when I'm learning something that's interesting to me. And so I think when I was teaching, I really was like, okay, most of these students don't actually want to be in my class because I was teaching a business class for creatives. And like, that's usually not something most creatives are interested in, right? They, they want to paint, they want to be an animator, they want to have their own fashion line. They want to do the creative thing because that, that's what they love. But then, you know, I was fortunate that my school recognized that the business side is how you keep doing that and make a living off of that, right? And so uh, my class is actually a prereq for all students that they have to go through if they're looking to get a degree there. I realized very quickly within like the first lecture I gave on the first day I started teaching, I was like, I need to win these students over immediately because they already don't want to be here. They already don't see the value in what I'm teaching. And if I can't figure out a way to engage them 
and meet them where they're at, they're never going to come along with me. And that and that's kind of what really I think started it is is even that knowledge that people learn differently from the way I learn things. And I'm like, oh, like that's super fascinating. And then when be, I became a teacher, I was like, oh, I really need to get good at this if I want to serve these students. Right. And that's exactly where I find myself. And with the teenagers that I work with, it's a step slightly farther because what I've realized is I don't even have them in front of me a lot of the times. They may be homeless when they're struggling with addiction or something or in gangs, human trafficking. There's so many stories that I could tell. And and that's exactly so similar though, because I'm asking the question, how do we uh, step into the world where they are at to try and reach them? And it's fascinating to me that you brought up uh, Tim Ferriss and Josh Kaufman, because I don't expect people to watch my content prior to coming on this show. But serendipity is pretty pretty neat when these interviews um, have something like that come up. My YouTube trailer is all about those guys and how they have this framework for learning. And I choose the number of 200 hours to try learning things. A, because it's the next thing I want to learn, but B, just to show people how to learn and that it's okay to be vulnerable and jump into that. Seth has a catchphrase over the years, stop stealing dreams. What does that mean to you? We hold ourselves to a really high bar, right? And I I think that's the biggest thing that prevents more people from going after their dreams is that, you know, it's like, I love that you're, you're talking about 200 hours. Because even using like Josh Kaufman's 20 hours to learn everything model, yeah, you're, you're good at something, you've learned how to do it competently, but you're still not great. And it's until you really put some time and effort into something that you really start to really appreciate the craft that goes into that. If you've never learned how to cook, or if you're like, okay, I can chop onions, I can boil pasta, I can open a jar of spaghetti sauce and like add all of that together. That's awesome. But when you're understanding how to change the texture of pasta, like when to put what the ingredients and you start adding more things to your sauce and you start making sauce from scratch and you really start appreciating the cooking process, then suddenly food takes on a whole new world. Before it's just something you're like, this is good. This is less good. That's cool. Now you can start being, this is good because of X or like, oh, this is good because of X. And I can take that learning and apply it to this other dish that I make. Right. And, and, and you start getting this bigger vocabulary in a way in that field. What happens is so often we start something, we don't have that vocabulary. And then it just gets really painful because we don't like being beginners at things, right? Like no one wants to feel stupid. No one wants to feel like they're not talented or not good at something, but we're all not talented and not good at something when we first try it, right? And and I think by holding ourselves to this standpoint or this idea that there's like a natural gifted person in something, I think we're really cutting ourselves short and we're preventing ourselves from doing the hard work that it's going to take to achieve those dreams, right? It's like even like the story of Michael Jordan, right? Everyone's like, greatest of all time, amazing, phenomenal athlete. And if you look back at it, his history, he constantly got cut from basketball teams, right? And it's only the fact that he outpracticed people, even at the height of his game, right? He was always the first to, to get to the gym, the last person to leave practice, even when he was a five times NBA champion. And he was still practicing harder because he's like, I can't let up, right? And But I think we never see that hard work and we just see people's kind of highlight reels, especially today on social media, right? It's just like, oh, this guy won an award. Oh, this person launched a new book. Oh, this person has a nice house, whatever. But you don't see maybe the 20 years of work that they had to put into it where they're just 
oh, writing another new book, right? But I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, because they practice and they have 18 other books they wrote that no one's ever heard of. And that's what allowed them to have their New York Times bestselling 19th book, right? Yeah, I, I think it's Stop Stealing Dreams is maybe something that we need to look at as opposed to saying like, hey, other person, don't steal my dreams. I think a lot of it is, hey, myself, I need to stop stealing my own dream and give myself the beginner's mind and the psychological safety to be vulnerable, to fail, and to learn from that because that's how we grow. I appreciate you mentioning the the 200 hours specifically. For me, what I knew was that I needed a number that would allow for enough iterations to show people, like you said, how to have that beginner's mindset. And I didn't want to take it the rest of my life to show one version of that because you have Erickson and Malcolm Gladwell talking about 10,000 hours. You know, that doesn't work. I thought 20 hours would be too quick because if I take up filmmaking for 20 hours, I mean, how much can I really learn how to turn the camera on? Probably. So I thought 200 would be good. Tim Ferriss talks about six to 12 months as kind of like a really good testing point. In terms of getting into some uh, of the technical aspects around teaching online, you mentioned um, being a student in Alt-MBA. Have you taken other online courses too? Like what's your experience as a consumer before we get into being a creator? I've taken some classes on Udemy, kind of around some uh, like game game engine design and like using Unreal and uh, Unity. Uh, and so I, I take classes like that. I've taken, uh, I took one university class online and I found that they really didn't work for me because there's no accountability, right? Like they had my money. They had all of the information out there. I had ta- oh, I had taken some classes from uh, Ramit Sethi of uh, Growth Lab and I Will Teach You to Be Rich. I've taken some of his classes. I've bought courses from Chris Guillermo from the World Domination Summit. I- I'd bought a lot of educational products before and they're great. And the knowledge was amazing and it was super worth my money. I-, I don't regret taking them at all, but I just didn't follow through with it because I kind of needed at the time in my life, I needed someone to kind of be there and be like, hey, how's this going? Hey, how's this going? And when I took the Alt MBA and I had uh, three meetings a week that I had to be at, I had to ship a project three times a week. Then I then had to leave five comments and then I had to reflect on the comments that had been left with me. And then you're just in this crazy sprint five weeks. That changed my life. And I was like, I have learned so much about myself with no teacher, really. Like we had coaches, but it's really the cohort that you're moving through the work with. Basically, wait, I don't need a teacher. I just need accountability and myself and the time. That completely blew open how I thought about education. And I was actually already teaching at the university by the time I took that. I completely revamped how I approached interacting with my students after that course. And even though I have all this business experience, I would still constantly be like, you guys work it out for yourself first and then come to me because I think you can probably figure this out on your own. And giving them that trust really also changes how they showed up in class and their own self-confidence and their own, you know, I was trying to teach them and show them that they have the answers in themselves and they can find the answers. They don't necessarily need me because I'm also not going to be here for the rest of their lives, right? They have me for a semester and then I'm gone. And if they're only relying on me to help them figure out their resumes and cover letters and business plans, then what happens when I leave, right? So I kind of came up with this idea that I'm like, the best gift I can give you is to how to do research and how to unlock those answers for yourself with your peers. And and that's kind of how I completely switched the focus of my class more towards that, as opposed to like, let me tell you how to run a business. 
if someone were uh, setting out to create an online course for the first time, I think you've brought up networking, peer-to-peer interaction, collaboration as strength. What are some other things that come to mind that somebody should have in an online learning experience? Nice tech is always an add-on, but I think I just want to kind of throw that out there because it's like, yeah, like good lighting, like a nice camera, like stuff like that makes it really nice, but that's also not necessary. And people are probably more willing to pay for good information delivered in an awesome way than they are going to care about like the background lighting. So, I mean, there's like little basics of like, yeah, like don't be in front of a window. Sure. Make sure you're speaking close to the mic, things like that. I think really what I would say is on top of, of what we talked about is how do you create a sense of belonging and how do you empower the students as opposed to talk to them? I think that's really the core. I think how you do it is really up to you, whether that's having like a Slack channel or like some chat feature, right? Or a commenting thing, or people are sharing Google Docs that they're commenting on. But I I think the key thing that, that we keep in mind when we're creating content is how do we engage people and how do we make them feel seen, heard, and that they're a part and that they're co-creating this experience with us. Yeah, that makes sense. And you get that buy-in and trust as well. What's uh, one thing that was surprising in a positive way in all your experience of teaching online that you maybe didn't expect? And one thing that maybe in a negative or a challenge you had to overcome that you didn't expect? Some surprises? Something surprising in a good way is I think that insight about how people really know all the answers. And it's really just, um, like I talked about with coaching, it's really just providing them the space and the safety to get there. I was one of the facilitators, uh, the coach host for uh, Seth Godin's Real Skills Conference. And we do very little coaching. So much of the workshop is providing people the questions and then putting them in small breakout rooms and having them discuss among themselves. And the insights people were getting from those were amazing, right? Like people were changing their lives. We were just asking questions and kind of letting people go off and do do things themselves. And so it's a really amazing and humbling experience to realize that you are probably less important than you think you are. And building that community is the number one priority and the support for people. A challenge, I think, is also understanding that what you do is not going to be for everyone. And that's okay because you don't want to be for everyone. You want to be for someone. And something that we struggle with is when we, even with our free workshops, they're interactive. We ask that you have your camera on. We're having you type. We're having you come off mute. This is not a passive webinar experience, right? Like it's very interactive. And that is a heavy lift for a lot of people because so many of us want to just have our camera off, be kind of listening while watching Netflix in the background or like, you know, working on a report or doing doing work while you're kind of listening passively. Like that's what a lot of people want. And we find that that in itself is a huge barrier to people. But the people that do climb that barrier are the right people for us. And we're the right people for them. And so it's kind of sad to see like, oh, like someone runs a webinar and they have like 200 people show up. We run an interactive workshop. I would say argue provides more value, but we get 10 people. It's so it's really knowing who is it for and being okay that it's not for a lot of people. Before we go down the path of that target audience, let's just talk on the tech side for a quick second. What do you run a webinar like that through that allows people to interact? So we actually run everything through Zoom meetings. I know uh, we're actually partnering with a tech company to run a larger uh, session. They run everything through Zoom webinar. 
which is cool because webinars are great for dispersing information, but they're and or demoing something, but they're not nearly as impactful as running a meeting where where suddenly everyone sees each other and there's no hiding. You all have to show up. And, and that's actually how we run all of ours. So, and, you know, like from a tech perspective, we like Zoom because of like the breakout features. It generally tends to perform better on lower bandwidth. You know, if people want to use the new Google Meet or whatnot, you know, I, I think the tech is less important as, as opposed to finding something that allows you to facilitate the conversations you want to have and the type of education that you want to uh to create for people. But I think the point is that a lot of people get scared off. They think they need to build some big uh, WordPress thing that they don't know how to code or these, uh, you know, go hire a company that's going to charge them an arm and a leg to build a decent webinar. So the fact you brought up Google and Zoom are great examples of low cost, potentially high impact things that people can get started with. So in terms of finding those 10 people, though, this is a huge topic when it comes to, I want to start an online course. What's my target audience? Um, What questions do you ask that helps the most with that? The number one question I would ask myself is just, what do other people tell me I'm good at? Because I think we often have a a huge block around our own strengths. And like, that's what as a student with Alt MBA really helped me unlock is is seeing where I can help other people. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, what am I good at? I'm like, I I guess I'm I'm kind of good at art. And I'm kind of good at, at helping teach people stuff, right? And then people were like, you're a phenomenal speaker. And I'm like, I didn't think that. Or like, oh, you have a really good presence or, or whatever, right? Like all these other things that people notice about you. And that's kind of what you want to go with. Because our imposter syndrome, like everybody has imposter syndrome. I'll, I'll straight up and say that I teach for Seth Godin. And I have mad imposter syndrome about teaching for Seth Godin, right? Like it, it's something that everyone faces. And I think it affects us in different ways. But everybody has it because that's part of being human. And I think the imposter syndrome or I will assert that this imposter syndrome really is good at making us blind to our strengths. And so by having external people who know us and we can trust and we can be vulnerable with, tell us what they think we're good at, that's probably what you should run with. And so once you have that idea and you're saying like, okay, well, I'm really good at maybe teaching people, like I'm really good at baking vegan cookies, I guess, or something like whatever it is that you're good at, then going out and saying, oh, well, who would be interested in learning about that? And then that's when you start having conversations and saying like, hey, like, you know, find your first 10, go to your friends first and be like, hey, I'm thinking about this. Do you want to sign up? Which is very important is parsing the question of not are you interested in this, but is saying, will you pay me money for this course? Could be like $10, right? It doesn't have to be a premium, you know, 199, 149, whatever. But it's just going out in the beginning and saying, are you interested in this enough to put some money? Because this is the other thing is when you say, are you interested in it? All of your friends will say yes, or most of your friends probably will say yes. But if you say, will you pay for this? Then that's actually getting to the core of the question of, will you have paying customers? And that's a big filter, right? Then suddenly people are like, well, I don't know about that. And then you're like, okay, that's it's cool. It's not for you. But then it makes you either refine your idea or go find more people who it might be for. I think that leads right into the next big question that people have. And you certainly hit on the first half of the question is, okay, I'm starting out. I want to be an online course creator, but I have zero audience. Where do I start? It is the hard work of building an audience. It's putting some information out there that will get people to recognize your credibility 
and then would be then they'll be more interested in actually paying you to learn. Also, depending on how you're structuring your courses, we picked something up from Ramit Sethi who talks about how he gives 90% of his content for free, but that 10% premium stuff, he charges a super high premium. And so that isn't necessarily everyone's target demographic, right? Like his courses start, I think, in like $2,500 or so for uh, just like a video course. He also has a few $10,000 programs. So he's looking at a very high premium entrepreneurial, more established business person type thing. That doesn't have to be your audience and that's fine. But I think the way we look at it is that the material we give you isn't necessarily the value. What you're paying like our consulting work for is us really working with you to make a custom solution, right? So like if you can go through all of the work, the free worksheets we give and the workbooks and the the online email courses or whatever we have, if you can go through that and you change your life, great. That's awesome. Like good for you. We're not going to hold that against you. Go do that. But we hope that then you see how valuable the work we do is. And if you find that you're coming up up against something you can't do by yourself, you're going to think of us and come and hire us for those high ticket items. You know, even if you're doing a baking course, I think it's maybe giving recipes away for free, but then the course is video of you showing like, this is what it means to sift flour, right? This is a consistency. Can you see how it crumbles and how it's not crumbling, right? Like that is what people want because anyone, you know, there's tons of recipes out there, but people still pay for cooking classes. That's the fascinating thing and where even I myself have gotten lost over the years is wanting to help as much as possible for free and being like, I don't want people to have to pay because as you mentioned earlier, there's all these different socioeconomic things and we just want to help everyone, but not recognizing that you could end up helping more people by finding the right way to put a price on it. And I think everything you hit on will certainly help a lot of people. One way I like to wrap up kind of the expertise, if you will, in terms of the topic is to give a scenario and just see where it goes. I work with a lot of young adults in tough situations and most of them want to start their own online business. If you came into guest coach for me with a student who 18 years old, he's going to be getting out of jail soon and he wants to be that next online course creator, but he's young, where do you tell him to start? I would say start the same place everyone else starts is like, what, what are you known for? Right. Or, or what strengths do you have? Right. Just because you're young, just because, you know, maybe part of your life you've been, you've spent behind bars or incarcerated. That doesn't mean you haven't picked up skills and just trying to figure that out, I think is really crucial. And that's the starting point. Maybe your course is teaching people the basics of, of basketball through the lens of what it means to survive prison life, right? Like, I don't know, like, I, that's just super compelling to me, right? Like, even if I'm just a basketball fan, I'm like, whoa, like, this is super interesting. Like, I, I, I've never been to prison. I would love to know, but I, it's fascinating, right? It's this whole different subset of society that has probably a lot to teach, right? Or there's a lot of parallels to competitive sports with surviving while incarcerated. Maybe that's what your course is about, but it's really about finding finding out like, what is this person good at, right? Maybe do they learn software coding? Maybe it's a boot camp for other incarcerated people, or it's like the lens of incarceration, right? Like take, I think what it is, is potentially take your constraints or the things that you're working against you. And how can you maybe flip that into the lens that becomes really interesting for people, right? Because we we often see our, what society might call blemishes in our past, right? It's like, like I've been arrested before. I've 
come from a very low income family. I've paid for most of my schoolings through student loans. You know, like there's things like that that people were like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I've been to therapy, right? Like, I don't want to talk about therapy, right? There's all these things that society is like, oh, that's that's not cool stuff about the person. But if you can turn that into something you've learned, like if you can distill the learnings from those negative experiences, those can suddenly become your biggest strengths, right? And it's kind of like with me, I used to be terrified of telling people I had imposter syndrome, that I didn't know what I was doing as an entrepreneur, that like business was hard, that, you know, I've tried businesses and then they've never taken off, right? Like that used to be terrifying for me to say. And like the idea that this is like publicly recorded would have like killed me back in the day. But the thing is like, those are what allow me to be such a good coach to other people with imposter syndrome, right? Because I've kind of gone through like the worst of it. And I've fortunately figured out how how to get the best of it. And now I can offer that as a gift to other people. So I think it's really figuring out what your strengths are, and even examining what you think your weaknesses are. And those could be perfect ways of creating something new. That's really helpful to people. Well, you would be a great coach to any of them. That's for sure. Uh, is there anything you think that we left out that you'd like to share on the idea of content or course creation, online business? Yeah. Just one quick thing is the idea of generosity. And I think we often see generosity as giving away something. Like it's like, oh, I want to, I want to help a lot of people. I want to give my content away for free. The thing though is sometimes it's generous to actually charge people in the way that one is generous to your to you and honoring the work that you've done and the lived experiences you've gone through. And that will provide, allow you to continue doing this work and sustain you throughout that. And the other way is that money is a story. And we've found like, and this is something that Seth has talked about, something that we found personally is when you give away a course for free and there's no skin in the game, there's no investment from the participant, they have a much higher chance of not finishing the course. So even if you're charging a small amount, the fact that they've invested in themselves. And if you frame it from, this is you investing in your growth and learning, people take it much more seriously. And you'll find that people are much more willing to engage with the material and the people. And you're going to see a more success rate, which is great because then people tell other people about your course and then you get more signups that way. Yeah, that's huge. I think it's all about how we view something in terms of a definition and perspective. I'm sure just that one pointer will help a lot of people. In wrapping, I always ask the same four questions of people. I like how it ties it together. Uh, If you were to leave any piece of advice for the next generation, what would it be? I would think talk to as many people as possible and listen to their stories because I think you will find that we're all a lot more similar than you would think. And I think you're also going to find that were different in different ways than you might first imagine. No, that's good. One thing that you currently are learning right now. I am learning how to be better at sales in terms of going out and talking to people and saying, hey, uh, especially at the price point that we're working on at corporate consulting, I am very personally uncomfortable with saying, hey, I I can solve your problems. Please give me 20,000 USD. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and But I also understand that the value is there and that we could literally transform organizations. Um, and so I stand by the price point, but I think it's also a very uh, uncomfortable place for me to play. And I'm, as a business owner, having to be able to be comfortable making those, uh, those sales calls. Well, I think another pointer is knowing that the money is there too, and it's going somewhere. I find that's helped me 
over the years. How are you going about learning that? For me, it's practicing. So going out and talking to people, also reading books on sales. I'm very fortunate that we're actually co-creating a sales workshop that we're, we're hoping to offer to people soon. So I've been actually just kind of learning from the subject matter expert that we're partnering with, uh, who has, I think, 30 years of sales experience at a very high level. So it's great to just uh, be able to kind of pick her brain and keep those things in mind when I'm going out and doing my own work. That's neat. And in a short time, you hit on it, just getting knowledge by reading and practicing and learning from a mentor. Like, so that's pretty neat. If you were to ask me a question that you thought my answering it would serve my audience, what would a question be that you would ask me? The question I would lead you, leave you with is just, what is the number one thing that you feel is holding you back right now? It's a neat one, I think, that's coming to mind. And it's, it's so opposite to what we hear a lot in mainstream uh, memes and stuff. And it's the idea of fear of success in that I'm used to failing. I'm fine with learning or winning as a mentality and failing to succeed in something. But with the route that I'm headed down in terms of building business, success can take you away from a lot of other things that you love doing. And so I think that over the years has held me from taking those big risks or maybe big opportunities that you know might take you away from your family a little more for a time being, or I love my day job. And it's a decision to try and do more to help because it's going to be greater good versus not loving the life that I already have. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, you know, people who consume Gary Vee's content, you'll hear that because they hate their lives. It's like, this is how you can find the other life. This is how you can get your dream. I love mine, yet I want more. And so it's a fear of success sometimes, I think that holds me from really going for things. Sounds good. That's just coming to mind quickly. <laughs> I'll have to uh, call you for one of your 20 minute coaching sessions and we can talk about it. And the last question is just why and then where people could find you online. Sure. Um, people can find me online at kaiju k-a-i-j-u coaching.com if they're interested in booking a free 20 minute virtual coach session and want to work out a problem they're really not structured to be sales pitches it's really more of like happy to help we can get a lot done in 20 minutes so book one and if you like what you get out of it and want to keep going then we can talk but it's really just there to uh to help people um and if you are part of a larger organization that's looking for either really consulting around anything having to do with trust, whether that's people issues, diversity and inclusion, belonging, if you want help not micromanaging your employees, anything like that, please check out our free resources. You can go to online workshops, PDFs you can download, web tools. Uh, there's a lot of different stuff that we offer. So um, we'd love to see you. Uh, feel free to reach me. Please reach out. Happy to connect with people. Let me know what's up with you. All right, Rick, what I've learned in a very short time working with you is that you're a very humble, authentic, but extremely helpful person. So I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your day to record this podcast episode. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great being here. Of course. JKL community, thank you for being here. I really hope these are helping. It's hard to get all the stories to spread, so please do share the show with others. If you have a request for a guest too, that's something that's been a lot of fun, is hearing from you, the community, about who you would like us to interview. Thank you to our guest, Rick. Such an intelligent, creative, kind, and helpful person to learn from in the world of online business and content creation and learning. It's our goal to have this show in every school in the world, so please do subscribe, leave reviews, but most importantly, pass it on to someone who could learn from it. Until the next episode, all the best, and remember, just keep learning.